Welcome to Fashion Your Seatbelt, your first class seat to one-on-one conversations with the fashion industry's top voices. I'm Jessica Michaud, and I created this podcast to share the joy I have in getting to know all the amazing people who bring this creative, inventive, and extraordinary business to life. You'll get to hear the cadence of their voices, the sound of their laughter, and feel firsthand how passionate they are about what they do. Also, I just want to remind you to leave a review. Stars are really trending right now, and it helps other very stylish listeners like yourself find the show. Now buckle up, and let's get started. Barack Chukmok, the Dean of Fashion at Parsons School of Design in New York, is a man with a mission. His entire career has been in the pursuit of making the fashion world more streamlined, socially responsible, and sustainable. Born in Turkey during a time when the country was a closed market and under a single party rule, Barack saw firsthand what it was like to live and survive with minimal options in front of him. As the country opened up as he grew up, so did Barack's eyes to what the outside world had to offer and through education, he grabbed it with both hands, studying political science and getting an MBA. His thirst for knowledge pulled him towards California and the tech world, but the impact of his formative years led him down a different path, one headed towards the field of sustainability. During his career, he has helped to shape the social responsibility strategy for Gap, Caring, and the Swarovski Group, each job bringing forth new challenges and opportunities to educate and enlighten some of the fashion industry's biggest movers and shakers. Then, in 2016, Barack decided that instead of trying to change the current state of sustainability at established brands, he wanted to go to the true source of the fashion supply chain and became the Dean of Fashion at Parsons. This is his first role in the world of academia, and over the last four years, he has reworked the school's fashion focus, giving it a broader and more inclusive vision. And he has challenged traditional customs with innovative thinking to help ignite a fire of social responsibility in his students. Students who will, of course, be the fashion leaders of the future. I particularly wanted to talk with Barack now as the world is facing a pandemic paradigm shift to hear from him how he sees the future of fashion taking shape. And it was a relief to me to hear someone who is such a realist being so optimistic about where we go from here. Just on a technical side note, I did want to let all of you listeners know that, as is the new normal these days, Barack and I did our interview over Zoom video. So don't be surprised by a couple of very minor audio issues. And if you happen to be more of a visual learner, feel free to head over to my signature YouTube channel to watch the video version of this podcast in action. Okay, now let's listen to Barack let us in on what the future holds for us. Barack, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. I wanted to speak to you, um, do a podcast with you since the first time I met you. Your institutional knowledge is just um, gobsmacking, I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be part of this. Um, let's um, begin at the beginning. Can you talk to me a little bit about um, your life growing up? I know you're a twin. You came. You were born in Turkey. It's kind of an interesting path to the fashion world. So I want to hear how you got there. Okay, we're going quite far back, but indeed, uh, <laughs> it was an unexpected journey, to, to say the least. Uh, you know, I'm one of uh, twin uh, brothers, and I was born and raised in Turkey, in Ankara. At a time when it was a closed market economy, single party rule, uh, there wasn't really much of anything happening, uh, not even fashion, not even uh, you know foreign products. So uh, uh, learning how to live with the minimum you have in your hand uh, was the way you had to learn uh, to be 
uh, alive and survive. Uh, but then, you know, quickly as the country opened up and it uh, opened itself to other markets, it gave me a chance to also see a different part of what exists in the world. Uh, and with a lot of motivation around education and interest about learning and curiosity, I basically uh, studied many different things. Uh, I had a degree in politics uh, and then decided getting an MBA uh, and then did even courses and uh, programs related to sustainability and found my way to first to California, mm-hmm. uh, where I was contemplating being part of the the high tech world, but it was the end of the first boom oh. and it was not a good time to necessarily go into the tech world. Uh, it would have been a very different life, but it pushed me to look for a much more of a brick and mortar company that was looking for support and you know, with my eclectic background, I was looking for a place that allowed me to bring my interest from politics, economy, business uh, to doing good uh, and had a chance to get into Gap to really help them build their compliance function, uh, dealing with the issues in the factories. Uh, it, that was in the late 90s when they were facing a lot of criticism for labor conditions in the factories. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was part of that uh, initial team to try to address those challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, at an early age, it gave me great insights into understanding uh, what is the full value chain behind the fashion industry and what it takes to create a garment. And with that, because sorry to interrupt, but I'm really curious about when you were growing up and when I was growing up, the idea of sustainability. And I mean, I grew up in California, so it was more top of mind, but that's, that's an interesting direction. It's very a la mode now to be in sustainability and eco-friendly and all of that. But what drew you to that specifically? Because you said you had a lot of different interests, you know, political uh, business, et cetera. What about that really? and, And tech really spoke to you on a gut level? I mean, the reality is uh, I was exposed to haves and have-nots and, uh, you know, much more of a left and the right and and, uh, emerging markets to the center of capitalism. And then you see all of these pressures and dynamics. And it was this genuine interest in trying to figure out finding solutions and building bridges across these these systems Mm -hmm. really encouraged me to look for a place where I can do some good and make a living out of it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that you could search for this on the internet for a job. It also was luck in some ways. When I was looking for positions available and I saw something that was related to dealing with these issues around the world, it triggered my interest. And in some ways, I grew up with it as well. Mm-hmm. And it it shaped me as well as I shaped the role that I was in. Well, then let's talk a little bit, just a little bit more about uh, the gap role, because, you know, again, 90s, the, you know, maybe people were talking about the environment and sustainability. Did you, how were you able to kind of add that social responsibility aspect to the supply chain at the gap? Did you get pushback? Were people really motivated to help? How, how did you, because it, it is, it was early days again. How did you start the ball rolling? Well, I mean, it was very much the early days and there was a recognition uh, that nobody knew exactly how to approach it. So we didn't even know where the responsibility lied because legally it was the responsibility of the supplier and uh, everything that was happening in the supply chain. Uh, So it was the first time brands were kind of venturing to that space of saying that we are being a, a good citizen and taking responsibility of every 
something that impacts uh, across our value chain, even if we are not legally responsible for it. I think it evolved to a very different point now. I mean, with COVID-19, you're seeing brands committing to keep their orders in place and providing masks and really trying to provide solutions to factories that they're not the only uh, buyers from and they don't even own the factories. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is not even a question in today's age. So in, in some ways, it feels like a long time, but technically about 20 years is not that long for this yeah. kind of evolution. Absolutely. Uh, so... Uh, so we were really questioning how to approach it. And those actions of companies like Gap and Nike at that time really influenced everybody today all the way to H&M and Zara and many others, as well as to the luxury brands, because it was a period where uh, nobody was taking any action and everybody only talked about product. And uh, with the awareness raising and consumers are being much more conscious about uh, how products are made, where does it come from? Uh, I think it pushed people to think in their marketing strategy as well. What does it mean uh, to be a brand and what are our core values? And when we communicate that, it's not just about the individual product we are showcasing, but also everything that went into making that, that special product. Because otherwise, you would only compete at the price level. Yeah, absolutely. And then to just to continue your origin story, you went from the gap to caring. And I think you were the, the first, first or the first to lead like the sustainability strategies for the company i mean caring is now pretty much linked at least in the luxury world with sustainability you were kind of at the epicenter at the beginning of that can you talk a little bit about why you went there and what your goals were there and how you implemented that yeah i mean and to make it even more clear at that time it was called ppr pinot yeah. printan Redoute, the company and uh, they started acquiring uh, luxury brands specifically from dominica de sole they bought the gucci group and uh, Gucci Group was this separate entity that was run out of London office and it was all the luxury brands under one umbrella. And that's the space that I came in as the first person focused on sustainability, very directly linked to what PPR was trying to do with the rest of the brands they owned. Uh, things like Conforma, Redut and several other companies that were more mass market and beyond fashion as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, it allowed me to kind of really think the difference between luxury and mass market mm. and recognize the differences, but also similarities, uh, but also even put more emphasis on the importance of the brand value because the higher you go in price point, clearly the brand matters even more and it's uh, more precious to protect, uh, which also requires them to operate in a way where they're not uh, necessarily doing the same thing. So in some ways, there's always a healthy competition, even internally, uh, all the way to marketing and being able to say that uh, they are the innovators and doing something for the first time. So the strategy was not just looking at across the value chain, what can be done better from uh, labor conditions in the factories to its climate change impact to the store operations, uh, but also what is the messaging to the individual uh, consumers of these brands and how does it differentiate? And it had to be a very different message rather than a group message. So it was an exercise very much about marketing and branding as well as sustainability in that journey for a very different product category as well. Interesting. And, and then from there, you jump to Swarovski. So that's a, another animal as well. I, I, you're, you have such a great eclectic career. I'm incredibly jealous. So what about what made you decide to jump ship and then Swarovski? What was the challenge there that fascinated you? I mean, uh, what, what was fascinating about going into a company like Swarovski was more than anything, first and foremost, they're an ingredient brand and they're a 
B2B as well as a B2C brand. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, working across uh, all the operations of uh, the group, uh, directly working with Nadia Swarovski, but with the rest of the board as well, I was really looking at how to implement a strategy uh, that can be beneficial to the business to business customer. Because first and foremost, uh, in the fashion industry, crystal was used as an embellishment on the garments. Uh, so it's a very different strategy than just directly talking to the brand consumer, as well as uh, for, through their jewelry brand, what kind of messaging that can be shared. Also, very different than the typical fashion supply chain, suddenly I was with a company, number one, 100% family owned, but number two, uh, what was quite unique is that they owned their operations uh, fully as well. So everything from beginning to end is managed by the company and owned by the company. And they still have the original factory that the founder established in Austria that's producing the crystals. So it kind of suddenly shifts your mindset around, you know, labor conditions are not as much of a concern because it's the fifth generation family in uh, Tyrol that's continuing to produce. And you can be sure that that's at a level that, has not been heard of, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but at the same time, it has an opportunity to tell a story and change mindset and take a stand uh, as a brand to shift the dialogue around what's the purpose of a brand and also try to infuse those purpose into uh, into their products as well as help their customers infuse those values into their products as well. So we were able to do a lot of creative projects a link to the crystal itself all the way to things like design Miami and other events where we try to bring purpose into every action that has been taken and really bring attention to issues of climate change, things like importance of mangroves and we have installed uh, cameras with our employees uh, up on the Alps to track the uh, melting of the glaciers. Yeah. Uh, so it allowed us to dream in a, in a very unique way and in a big way uh, to kind of be much more aspirational and uh, really get the attention to issues that matter. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely, you are, you are with each step in your career using, using new muscles and creative muscles, new business muscles each time. And then, and then your next step, you kind of went up uh, all the way up the supply chain yourself, the fashion supply chain yourself, becoming, going to the students the, as Dean of Fashion at Parsons. So never worked in academia before. What made you want to do this? What made you think you could do this? Because that is a that is a huge, huge project. Yeah, I mean, uh, I love taking on a challenge, and uh, it was the the perfect challenge because being in the industry for long enough, recognizing uh, the positives and the negatives, not to blame any single brand, but the reality is designers have very limited power in the in the businesses today oh. as they become global conglomerates a designers role is very much defined as creating a collection and uh, and helping with the marketing of the brand mm -hmm. uh, but in some ways the creativity starts with the designer and the design studio and it should not be just designing the marketing story as well as the product but it should be thinking about the whole business model and the business strategy and uh, I've seen the lack of that in my journey and the difficulty in being able to change things. Number one, with designers that didn't have this type of education, so they weren't necessarily open to the idea where they had the ability to bring influence, or they were in organizations where they were not able to even bring that voice, even if they cared about it. Mm -hmm. So the only way I felt I can bring change is to be able to work with academia and all of the experts there that have been doing an amazing job in creating talent uh, to help them infuse knowledge around the role of designer in society 
in addition to creating amazing collections and garments, uh, what purpose and story can they tell? What change they can bring? But also bring in the challenges of the system that I've seen, things like speeding of the whole fashion system, the number of collections and number of designers out there, the constant price competition, things are not necessarily selling and a lot of product being disposed of in ways that nobody would ever approve of. Uh, is stuff that designers should be thinking from the beginning phase as they're designing products. So it should not be just driven by interest for marketing a product for buy more, buy more. Yeah. It should be about thinking about uh, saying, how do you use this product? How do you engage with the brand? How do we build a sustainable business model that we're still making money, but we're not necessarily trying to damage the world as well? Okay. It's, not a, it, it's not an easy answer. There's no formula. Everybody does it differently, of course. Uh, but the journey that I took in the past five years at Parsons allowed me to really work with the faculty, looking at every aspect of the curriculum, going deeper into aspects of how do we design, how do we communicate, how do we market, but also let's really question, do we need more collections? Yeah. Uh, what else can a designer do? And how do we push those boundaries? And how do we bring purpose into design process itself? And, and of all of those things, because it sounds like quite a laundry list of a to-do list that you've got there, what are, of everything that you've implemented, is there something in particular that you're incredibly proud of that you, that you feel is really rolled out in a way that you think is going to really change from the epicenter or the, 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 the beginning of the design journey for a young designer? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we've done intentional shifts. So obviously we reviewed everything in the curriculum, but there are a couple small things that show the intentional shift that we were trying to put in place. Mm -hmm. So one of them is absolutely changing the incentives. And uh, in the past, we were always awarding students for uh, designing collections. Mm -hmm. And as I said, there is a big challenge with that because the ultimate goal cannot be doing more collections over and over and over. Mm -hmm. uh, so we actually got rid of the requirement that you have to create a collection even when you're graduating. Absolutely, you have to learn how to construct the garment and that's part of the curriculum, but also you're trying to be creative with how do you, how do you use design to bring change. So the, instead of awarding students for the best collections, we started awarding for their innovation in the process mm. because we wanted to change that mind shift to say that what matters is that you can show that you can innovate both uh, from a design perspective, but also even from a social impact perspective. Uh, and that's what matters in making you resilient in this new world, where you are constantly looking for opportunities to innovate in how to use design to bring change. So just to mention the categories of awards we introduced for the past five years, they were um, fashion and technology, uh, social innovation, future textiles, and creative systems. And none of them required you to have a collection to be able to be considered for these. Uh, but beyond all of these, we also separated the curriculum in different pathways. And the one that I felt was much more unique compared to all the other institutions was called Systems in Society. Oh. And the intention was there to say that if you really want to think about design in this bigger way, you can take a path on Systems in Society in defining how can fashion be used to create new systems that's addressing interest and needs in society itself. It can be a very much of a commercial need, but also it can be much more purposeful. It can be even building a nonprofit, engaging with the governments, and not necessarily creating clothes and garments, 
but using the design thinking process behind what uh, makes a fashion garment happen and apply it in creative ways, not always necessarily in a studio setting mm -hmm. and engaging with communities to address these issues. And we've seen some amazing outcomes in the past couple of years. And I think it's setting a whole new direction for education. And what's impressive is that we are not the only one to go in this direction. I've seen every school, top school around the world now moving in this direction, recognizing the challenges. So in some ways, it's becoming a, a snowball effect. And hopefully we're going to see a very different world in the next 10 years. I know that you recently, because uh, we're, we're speaking, um, where we're still under quarantine during the um the COVID-19 um, epidemic or pandemic. One of the things I heard you talk about recently on a panel was this idea of creating everything digitally, using dig technology and digital to create a collection, as it were, but not ever actually producing anything until it actually gets to the showroom. I wanted you to talk to me a little bit about how you feel we're going to be, where, what direction you think we'll be going in the future. Is, it, is digital going to be leading the way to making this world more sustainable and making the industry we work in um, better. I mean, uh, the the impact of the pandemic is, of course, one, every, it's forcing everybody to be creative from their, their homes, number one, but also not having access to all of the tools beyond the digital tools. Mm -hmm. So suddenly there's an uptick in all of the digital uh, tools that everybody is trying to learn. But also I'm even seeing a lot of learnings and trainings that are promoted through all online uh, social media channels to everybody who are creative to learn how to use these tools. So we already were in that journey in the past couple of years and there were kind of uh, two schools of thought Obviously, there are a lot of designers who wants to continue and appreciate the craft and the hand and the making process, which should never disappear. But do we need everybody to use these tools is the big question. So uh, if you don't change, obviously, you risk dying. So uh, you have to find ways of evolving. Uh, so uh, trying to find a balance of what is craft and technology has been a conversation for the past decade in education. And I think you're now at a point where Full digital is expected, especially if you're a business, because clearly we've seen the limitations of uh, physically being able to do things in such situations. So there are tools, for example, uh, software like Clo that allows you to create 3D visuals of uh, designs, which you can turn into tech packs, send it to factories that can produce the physical garment and ship it to you. So this suddenly opens you to do social commerce through your Instagram, uh, potentially showing a 3D dress that you only digitally created and uh, get custom orders and then get it produced and shipped to a uh, consumer without ever having to invest earlier. So it can open the door for pre-orders, open the door for mass customization, potentially localization, um, especially because we are not even sure what country is going to open when. Are you able to ship things? Are you able to travel to places? I think there's going to be a big movement into localizing some of these efforts. Mm -hmm. Everybody's exploring how can they do pre-orders so there's some security around the money that they receive before they actually invest. Mm -hmm. uh, and in some ways also focus on smaller quantities as well. So uh, people are not necessarily willing to buy as many items. Definitely not now, but I don't expect it in the next uh, six to eight months. Wow. And also there's suddenly a shift towards much more investment items, which means that design is going to matter more. Wow. And it's not going to be just about this uh, fashion moment or fashion trend uh, that people are uh, trying to satisfy. And the fact that 
it's much harder for even mass market brands to produce cheaper versions in a quicker way creates an opportunity for even younger designers to be much more creative and put out original items and potentially get pre-orders for it and ship it. So I think we're going to hopefully see a much more diverse uh, ecosystem being born out of the pandemic uh, and allowing a space for even younger designers through digital tools to kind of prosper and uh, gain some recognition and engage with their community in a way that they've never been able to in the past. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a very hopeful look to the, towards the future because I know that um, there were some there are some projections that I think that global luxury sales are going to be down 30 to 40% in 2020, like 500 or $650 billion. I mean, yes. how do you, how do you calm the fears of your graduates? I mean, how they all must be freaking out. What are, what kind of advice or, or calming measures or, or guiding are you doing for them now to, to kind of help them weather the storm, knowing that the, that the world view fashion in the next few years is going to be radically different and, and a much tighter ship. There's going to be a lot of, you know, people falling away. I think a lot of brands that will no longer be here. Indeed. I mean, uh, that's why uh, I, I, it's a tough time to graduate no matter what. So, well, you know, that's a given, we cannot change the situation. Uh, but uh, I think we are trying to remind everybody that it's, it's the moment to forget about saying that I have to work for the well-known brands so that in my CV I can list these names, uh, but more like looking at who are the new innovators in the space, especially when it comes to that fashion and tech space. Mm. There's so many startups that are providing solutions across the whole value chain, mm. from marketing and sales to all the way to production, even all the way to material space. Uh, and even business models, people that are looking at how do you create new marketplaces, how do you engage with people for second-hand clothes and repurposing. So there's so many of these startups that are still continuing to do their work. Clearly, you may not be making a lot of money being part of this, but you can be part of something that's going to grow in a big way. Mm -hmm. So uh, I am actively promoting uh, these kind of organizations to the students, but also reminding people to necessarily, not necessarily to seek the big brands, but look for the innovators in these spaces, because this is the moment of change and it will create opportunities for these individuals to the future. And even if they don't end up being a $100 million brand in the next five years, that experience will allow them in two years to go into a larger brand in a much more equipped way than somebody who has just been waiting for a role or was in a very traditional role, but because nothing is working the way it is, they're not really able to bring new skills into the mix. No, I agree. The, the, where you're seeing the job opportunities now are these roles of you know, sustainability officers or you know, tech design, that kind of field is really what's exploding. At least that's what you're seeing out there in the, the, the job opportunities that there are. Do you feel, it, talking about tech, clearly you know, you know, lab-grown uh, fabrics and you know, streamlining supply chain, all of that stuff is gonna, really going to help. I was curious to know what you thought about the role of data and you know we talk about tech being important but some people really have issues with using data and uh to to impact the design process and 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 choosing it you know and artificial intelligence and i was wondering what your thoughts were about that whether the creative should lead or how should data's role what should data's role be in the process for a, a, an artist or a um 
luxury brand, fashion brand. Yeah, I mean, I was just reading some articles about wholesale and retail, and that plays in a big way in the decisions around brands deciding if they want to stay in wholesale. And it may actually be kind of uh, reducing the amount of wholesale everybody's doing because that is so important for existing brands, but also even younger designers. It doesn't mean that it needs to limit your creativity. You can still come up with your own creative vision. It's more a question around how you put it out there and how do you collect data on people's reactions Mm -hmm. and then react to that in terms of what you create. So uh, ultimately, all the tools are there for us to be able to really engage with the community in an organic way, but collect data behind the scenes and analyze it to identify how to approach a business plan around that. So I think what matters is that we need a balance. Creativity still has to come across as genuine and it shouldn't be coming across as it's driven by data. Uh, But uh, ultimately, the reaction is where we need to make the analysis and use that in decisions around what do you produce, what price do you sell, which consumer group do you target. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's do the, the famous question of where do you hope to see the industry in the next five years? What is the what is the direct yeah, what is the direction that you want to see us going in? Where do you hope we'll be in five years? Um, where do, what brands do you think will be the ones that come out of this alive, be surviving and thriving? Yeah, I mean, we, and we have been talking a lot about being interdisciplinary in our uh, journey within Parsons as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's becoming much more critical at a time like this. So brands that are able to work across industries and across different partners are going to be definitely much more advantageous compared to the other ones. Uh, I am hoping this will allow for a much more diverse ecosystem, as I was saying, a lot more smaller, healthier brands that are able to bring their voices out Mm -hmm. uh, because of all of the digital tools and channels that are available to them Mm -hmm. so that we are not just seeing a few large brands dominating the whole market and the taste of the consumer and influenced by just one type of marketing. Mm-hmm. That diversity mattered more than anything in the past, but now that we are going through this, it opened the door for everybody to really recalibrate to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so beyond all of that diversity, of course, the other element is how is fashion engaging with the world beyond just creating collections? Mm-hmm. I think uh, the brands that are already trying to do that is going to succeed in any way. And you know, they were trying to go into new categories as well, Uh, you know, home and hotels and travel. But I think there's opportunity to do even do do more purposeful things, such as what we are seeing at the moment. There's a big shift in supporting even uh, medical wear. Mm -hmm. How does that change brands? Can, for example, a luxury brand be also a brand that's doing good uh, through producing top quality product that are needed, let's say in a refugee camp for the cheapest price possible, And that's a different way of thinking about potentially making some revenue, but also highlighting what can sustainability look like in the 21st century post-pandemic situation rather than just giving donations. Mm -hmm. Wow. You you make me feel very hopeful about the future with with what you're saying. That's really good. Um, All right. So these, I have now my five generic fashion questions that I ask every person that I interview for my podcast. And they now, of course, post-pandemic or, you know, while we're in the pandemic, they feel even more <laughs> generic. But I guess the, the first question is, um, what is the, your favorite piece of clothing that you own that you cherish above all others? I mean, maybe, maybe there are a couple of them, but 
it's, it's things that I own for 20, 30 years, basically, because of the emotional memories. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, like, for example, uh, a swimsuit from my dad that he wore in the 80s <laughs> that I'm still able to wear. <laughs> Props to you. That's really impressive. That's great. <laughs> um, okay, so um, another question that I always ask is: Not everybody has a lot of money to to invest in, you know, quality clothes. But if there was one garment that a man or woman should really spend the money to, to buy, you know, a long term investment piece, what do you feel that that garment is? That piece is. I mean, it depends on where you're living, of course. But uh, anybody living in the northern hemisphere. A really good quality outerwear is the most critical thing that has all of the elements of functionality for weather and rain and cold. It's mm -hmm. so critical. Uh, you can wear whatever you want inside, but it protects you. It looks good. Uh, and, you know, you'll be seen in it a lot. So I think outerwear definitely is at the top of the list. I think that is absolutely correct. Okay, my next question is, who is your favorite designer, living or dead? <laughs> Tough question. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, the, the, the genius of McQueen has always, you know, kind of fascinated me. So, I, you know, I can definitely list them at the top immediately. So, I agree with you. McQueen has is, is definitely always been an innovator in his own you know, unique way. What trend will you never follow? <laughs> there are quite a few. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> Well, I, I try not to follow any trend, actually. I mean, I, I think that would be the right way of saying it. It, 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 may, it may come with age as well. I get it when you're a Gen X or Gen Z. It's a different world. <laughs> uh, but the ideal scenario is you create your own style and then uh, you stick with that rather than trying to follow trends. Absolutely. And then the last question is, what do you love most about fashion? I love the fact that fashion is beyond anything about emotion because you know if it's it's not a rational business <laughs> and i love the irrationality and it allows us to really engage at a very different level than any other business that you would be part of that's why i've never seen anybody who came into fashion to leave it mm -hmm. in many industries people move around but uh, because it's so personal and it's so emotional and everybody in it also lives that emotion all the way sometimes up to more dramatic situations uh, that you, you, you make it your life. It's hard to uh, not be part of it. Correct. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. This was amazing. You are wonderful, super insightful, and I will definitely be reaching out to you to check in about the future in the future. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Big kiss. Bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Don't want to miss an episode of Fashion Your Seatbelt? No problem. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and click on the subscribe button. Then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically. No fuss, no muss. Believe me, I know. I'm Jessica Michaud.